Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, multilingual writer Elena Lappin on her memoir, What Language Do I Dream In? My Family's Secret History. Elena Lapin is a writer and editor. Born in Moscow, she grew up in Prague and Hamburg and has lived in Israel, Canada, the United States and for longer than anywhere else in London. She is the author of Foreign Brides and The Nose and has contributed to numerous publications including Granta, Prospect, The Guardian and the New York Times Book Review. And we're here today to talk about Eleanor's new memoir, What Language Do I Dream In? My Family's Secret History. Elena, welcome to Little Atoms. Hello, thank you for having me. So the memoir starts with a phone call. Tell us about that phone call. Well, the phone call was possibly the strangest thing that's ever happened to me. So I'm sitting in the kitchen. We ha- we're having a big, loud, noisy family dinner. And the phone rang... And at the time, we had a landline extension in the kitchen, but also in the dining room. So I left the kitchen, closed the door, went into the dining room, picked up that phone. And a man with a thick Russian accent, speaking in English, said, am I Lena? He said, Lena. I said, yes. And he said, are you in good health? (laughs) I said, yes. He said, well, if you're not, I have something very shocking to tell you. And then he proceeded to inform me that the father who raised me was not my biological father, that my biological father was a man by a completely different name who I'd never heard of. He was surprised that I'd never heard his name. And he himself was my distant relative, an uncle by marriage, and he was calling from Moscow. And it had been his life's mission, really, to find me. And finally, after many decades of searching, he somehow did. And the strange thing is that, you know, I was at this point, I was in my sort of middle age. My children were all either teenagers or a little bit younger. And suddenly my life was completely changed by this revelation. And and, and the very strange thing was that I believed him without having any evidence or it was just a sense that... It rang true for reasons that I would only come to understand much, much later when I started examining 
all sorts of evidence and stories and life stories and so on. So that's what happened. That was the phone call. And when the phone call was over, it ended actually with him asking me whether he could now call my biological father and let him know where I was and give him my number. He told me that my biological father was living in New York at this point. And I said yes. And I put down the phone. I went back to the kitchen. I rejoined my family. And I didn't tell them a word of what had just happened, even though it really changed a lot of things in my life and in theirs. Um, I should add that the biggest sort of revelation about what he said was that my biological father was actually an American living in Moscow, the son of a Russian spy. And so that's how the story began to develop a kind of cloak and dagger quality. We'll come back later on to the the story of your biological father and his family, his extended family. But first of all, let's talk about your mother's life in Russia before. So because your mother leaves Russia to join your father in Czechoslovakia, she moved with you. Yes, she brought me there. Uh, They got married, she brought me there. So tell us about her life in Russia before you come along. So my mother was actually born in Baku in Azerbaijan in 1930. And she was the daughter of an Armenian father, not a Jewish father, an Armenian father, and a Russian Jewish mother, uh, who both of them were living in Baku and met there and they married and had her. Her happiest memories of her entire life are actually from Baku. She feels most at home, even though she hasn't been back to Baku for, you know, a lifetime. But that city is her kind of most comfortable, happiest habitat, you know, the the flavors and the colors and the people and the mix of ethnicities and languages. That's her home. And she's written a beautiful memoir herself about her life and about including including that part of her story, of course. In- um, including she talks about going being taken to Stalingrad shortly after the siege when she's a child, which is amazing. Yes, she she spent well, they moved from Baku to Moscow at some point and during the war they lived in different places and she and her father was uh, a soldier uh, and she lived with her mother in various places in evacuation as most people did away from the front and at one point her mother was told to go to Stalingrad for a job and so she took my mother uh, who was a little girl at the time and they traveled there and they happened to be there immediately or shortly after the siege the, you know when it when it ended and what she saw was a ghost town and she describes this ghost town in her memoir in the most stunningly cinematic way it's almost as if the city was alive five minutes ago and then it died. And what she saw was the death of a beautiful big city. And it felt like a movie to me, but she actually lived it. So my mother then, after the war, lived in Moscow and studied geography and met my biological father. They were actually neighbors in the same building, had me as a single mother, actually, And that relationship didn't work out, and she basically um, told him to leave. But when I say single mother, that doesn't mean that she lived on her own. She lived with her parents, as most people then did. 
Um, and eventually she fell deeply head over heels in love with my father. And when I say my father, I mean my father, the one who, who raised me. And he, although he also had been born in Russia, um, he was actually a Czech citizen and living in Prague at the time. And so when they decided to marry, they decided that she would then join him in Prague with me. So by moving to Prague, um, bringing me along, obviously, I was a, th a three-year-old child at the time, my mother's migration away from Russia, you know, became final because once you left, you didn't really go back. It was quite difficult to uh, even to visit family. And so her second home was then in Prague until our family then altogether emigrated after the Soviet invasion of Czechoslovakia in 1968 to Germany. And that's where we then lived. I, um, after finishing high school and a bit of university, I then left myself and, and moved elsewhere. But my parents and my brother stayed in Germany. So you mentioned how difficult it was to, once you'd moved to Czechoslovakia, to visit family back in Russia, back in Moscow. But you do do it, and there's a vivid memory you have. Perhaps am I right in saying it's the only visit that, that you remember where there's a garden? That memory is actually not a visit. That memory is my earliest memory. And the strange thing about it is that I was only, I think, a year and a half or maybe two tops <laughs> when it happened. And it was, it was before I actually left Russia. It was when my mother was taken to visit her future in-laws, my father's family, who lived outside of Moscow. And they had a garden. And I remember being told by a woman who I then later found out was my father's stepmother. She was pointing with great pride at um, cherries growing in their garden, and she would, she said in, in Russian, these are our cherries. And I remember her saying that, and I remember those cherries kind of trickling down my clothes and down my knee. I, I have a very, very, very vivid memory of that. But that's before I left Russia. So that's actually my earliest memory before I left. I'm J. Courtney Sullivan. You're listening to Resonance FM. And this is Little Adams, a radio show about ideas and culture. One of the themes of this book, as we can see from the title, What Language Do I Dream In?, mm. is about language. And over the course of the story, you, you acquire numerous languages and we'll, we'll talk about some of those as we go but growing up in Czechoslovakia this is the first time I guess that starts to happen in that you're obviously going to school mm. having to speak in Czech your parents are at home speaking in Russian as well obviously you speak Russian as well but what's that like that bilingual home growing up? So at first when I arrived I obviously didn't speak any Czech and my parents say that it took me maybe two months of complete silence in kindergarten of not speaking at all and then suddenly speaking completely perfect native Czech. So I waited that long until I felt that I had it and then I began speaking it and then it became my native language. I didn't feel that it was my second language. I felt that this was my real native language and I continued to speak obviously Russian at home to my parents. But to this day... I would speak only Russian to my parents and only Czech to my brother. We would never, you know, talk in Czech that would be, in Russian to each other. That would be very unnatural. But what it actually meant growing up with Russian and speaking Russian and Czech in Czechoslovakia was a bit of a sort of split identity because Russian was the language of the enemy. 
Russian was the language of the occupying power, and it was the hated language. So I was actually embarrassed to know it and to speak it. So I used to hide the fact that I knew Russian. In school, I tried to sort of speak it with a Czech accent so they would <laughs> know that I actually knew it really well. And I didn't, you know, I loved the books, the children's books, and I loved the language as it was, as it sort of came into my life and stayed in my life via my parents, my grandparents, and my reading. But I also, as especially as I got older, I distanced myself from it and from anything Soviet and anything Russian. And it took me a long time, many years later, to kind of maybe rediscover a more positive relationship <laughs> to it. But but I, I realized already from, you know, early on that a language is not just another language. It has emotional connotations. It has an emotional value. And you don't just know it, but you have feelings about the language as such. You love it or you hate it, whether you know it well or not. You were a, a teenager at the time of the, the <clears throat> Prague Spring and the subsequent invasion. Yeah. Tell us something about what those initial few months were like. The Prague Spring was an absolutely magical time. It was I was a young teenager when it began and there was an there was a complete change in the air. The air became <laughs> charged with an almost kind of erotic sense of total freedom. People were going crazy with this freedom. You know, it was intoxicating. It was something they never had before, uh, or at least not in their lifetime. Obviously, Czechoslovakia had been a free country, you know, m many, many decades before, but not in, in, in anyone's sort of memory. So suddenly you could go anywhere in the world. You can talk about anything. You could publish anything. You, you didn't have to be afraid of your next door neighbor, and so on. So this was fantastic. It was so exciting also in school and in Prague uh, as a whole, you know, theaters and art exhibitions and music, everything suddenly blossomed. It really was. I mean, the word Prague Spring can be taken completely literally because that's how it felt. And then the invasion came very soon after so the Prague Spring was, it started in January 68, more or less, and the invasion occurred in August 1968. So it was just a few months, really, of that kind of freedom. And then it began to change, go backwards and get worse. And so the the invasion was something I also experienced as a teenager. And obviously, it completely changed my life because shortly after we emigrated, not shortly after, actually two years after we emigrated, but immediately after I began losing friends because a lot of emigration was happening instantly. People were just leaving and disappearing. And it had, I realized, even even though I was really, really young, you know, 14, 15 years old, I realized that politics, what happens in, in the political spectrum and in history is really something that goes deep into every person's personal life. It's not abstract. It actually changes your own life. Your parents had built quite a life for themselves in, mm. in Prague. They were they, they were successful. They had lots of friends in the literary world of Prague. They basically have to start again in Hamburg. Do you remember that? What, what do you remember of the actual, of the move? What were the circumstances under which they went to Hamburg? They were quite 
sneaky about it, actually. We didn't have the typical emigration, you know, where people would kind of load up their car with <laughs> their goods and, and drive away. I didn't have that experience. My parents did something different. My father went ahead, got a very, very basic job in Hamburg just so he could support us. I was sent on holiday to Belgium. My mother with my much younger brother were still in Prague. And then we all kind of converged in Hamburg. And my brother and I were told that we were there for a year just to, to study, to basically to learn German and to learn a new language, new way of life. And then we'd go back. And that's how I saw it. So I didn't immediately feel that I was an emigre. And a year later, you know, gradually it became obvious that that had been a lie and that we were there to stay. So I started dealing with it gradually. It was a different kind of emigration story from most but I would say that every emigration, no matter how it happens, is very traumatic. It really is like a little death. Your life ends and you have to start again. Now, I was so absorbed by how it was happening to me that I wasn't really paying attention to what it was doing to my parents. Much later, of course, as an adult, I had to think about it and I realized they they threw away everything. They actually went back to, to basics. And they were very young. They were only 40 uh, so they could do it. And bit by bit, they built up a wonderful life, actually, in Hamburg. They ended up being very happy there. But it wasn't the same. And, you know, after the Velvet Revolution in, well, now Czech Republic, in Prague, my parents didn't wait long before they started a second home and started going back to Prague as frequently as they could, and they decided to basically split their time between Hamburg and Prague in their old age, as it were, leading more or less two parallel lives. And I have to add that about two weeks ago, today, my father actually passed away, and it was in Prague, but I, I'm saying it because it's, it's really relevant to what we're talking about, because he really wanted to die in Prague. It was very important to him, so he's now buried in Prague. And so that, that cycle of emigration, leaving home, coming home to die, really, to stay and to be buried there has ended for him in a way that he actually wanted. So for him, the emigration, to answer your original question, was so painful that he really hated the idea of dying in Germany. He wanted to come back to him. And in fact, he's buried in the Jewish cemetery in Prague, very, very close to Kafka's grave, which is kind of funny. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. 
Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Elena Lapin, and we're talking about her book, What Language Do I Dream In? My Family's Secret History. And Elena, just staying in Hamburg for the moment, your younger brother... Again, you're you're more concerned at the time about how you feel. You find out later on that he's had a very bad time. However, he does take to the language a lot better and indeed, you know, carves out a career for himself in the German language, which you don't do. Why do you think you didn't take to German? I was older when I arrived. So he was 10 and I was almost 16. And I took to German fine. I mean, I, I loved it as a language. You know, in school, I was I was very quickly sort of acting in school plays and, and loving my German literature teacher and what we were doing. I, I, I had no problem with that. But I knew immediately that as a writer, it was not the language I wanted or could be a writer in. Because, you know, all my life, since I can remember... I wanted to be a writer. That's all I ever wanted to be. I sound like those, you know, people on X Factor when they <laughs> when they ask them, how long have you been singing? And they say, all my life. That's all I ever wanted to do. But actually, it's true. You know, since my childhood, since I started reading, I thought, okay, this is the best thing I can do is this amazing thing that I've just read. I want to write something that's as amazing. So all my life, I wanted to be a writer. But then with the emigration to Germany... I found myself again in a different way, absorbed and immersed into an enemy language. Why an enemy language? Because historically, I saw it as the language of my enemy on a different level. This was the language of, you know, the people who murdered my people. I didn't see myself becoming a writer in German and joining that canon. It just didn't feel right to me. So I I thought, okay, that's just not going to happen for me. I'm not going to be a writer. I had no idea that later on I would find a different way into it through English. (laughs) Well, also then, as what you've just said about Germany, it's it's, it's presumably, uh, you know, appropriate that you, when you set out on your own, you end up in Israel for a period of time. You go Mm. to university, and also you acquire both a husband and Hebrew, Mm. and then. The story takes you back and forth, as you already mentioned earlier on, back to to Canada, to the US, back to Israel, ended up finally in London, where where you've been ever since. And also in all of those years while you were travelling, you you and your husband have a family as well. You have have children yourselves. And with all of that travelling, of course, you basically recreated the situation that that you grew up in with a, a multilingual family, haven't you? No, because, I mean, yes and no. Yes, because 
Yes, we recreated the pattern of moving from one country to another. But except for Israel, where the language was Hebrew, all the other countries were English-speaking. So actually, I have to say, to my great shame, my children do not speak any other languages, except for my oldest son, who spent some of his childhood in Israel, so he speaks Hebrew and is now living there. But the other children really don't speak anything. I mean, they've they've studied some languages, but they don't actually have those languages the way, you know, they would. And and it's probably my fault. Um, I didn't sort of persevere. But I actually loved the idea that they could just speak English and not worry about roots and things like that, to just kind of have it without thinking about it. It kind of appealed to me. So no, we're not a multilingual family. <laughs> well, I meant that, you know, there was multiple languages that, you know, both both you and, and Shalom, your husband, and, and the children could conceivably communicate in. Yeah. And you do try, as you said, you do try to teach the children Czech, but the difficulty mm. is you're not there. All these mm. other instances, you've learnt the language immersively, mm. whereas you're, you're trying to teach the, the kids your own language completely out of context. I have tapes of my oldest son speaking Czech, uh, and he could speak it until about the age of six. And now when he listens to those tapes, he doesn't understand what he's saying, but it, so- it sounds very familiar. So until that point, he had a, he had a sort of a certain amount of ability to speak Czech, but then he lost it. I don't know. I think maybe because the family became English-speaking, we lived in English-speaking countries one after another, you know, Canada, my husband is Canadian, the US, and then England. That was the most natural way for me to really grow into English as my main language and then become a writer in it. Let's go back to that phone call then. And how soon after that phone call do you talk to your parents about it? Hmm. Immediately. As soon as I put the phone down, and this is the way things are done in our family, it's always very instant and immediate and open and whatever happens, happens. As soon as I stop talking to the mysterious Russian man from Moscow, I called my mother first. First I called my mother, yes. And she was silent, you know, when I was telling her about the phone call. And normally, nobody in my family is ever silent during a conversation. We're instantly sort of talking against each other. Uh, But she was silent. And so I knew that this was true. And then she said, yes, but let me talk to your father and we'll get back to you soon. While she was probably calling him, I called my brother who was living in Berlin at the time and still is. And actually, my father was visiting him. So my father was on a mobile to my mother. I could hear them in the background, but my brother didn't yet know about any of this. So he picked up his landline and I told him what had just happened. And he, because he just had a bit of an argument with my father, he said, oh, why are you so lucky? (laughs) And he, he initially kind of liked the idea that this new father has appeared in my life and what what does this all mean? But very quickly he realized that it wasn't an easy situation to be in and he was concerned. He said, are you okay? He was worried about me actually. And I said that I was because I really didn't have any way at that point of understanding how this whole story would affect me in, in future. And then my father came on the phone and he also confirmed that this happened and he opened up about a few things that he hadn't been open about before and that was it so it was an instant kind of 
uh, and I would say there was a kind of period of detente, <laughs> and there was a period when my parents were quite open about talking about that that time and how it happened and and how they had felt. And then, the more I wanted to talk about it, the more I wanted to explore how it all happened and how it affected them as well. Gradually, they closed that door again, and it became painful. Um, not for my mother, actually, but for my father. It became very, very painful to talk about this because he was instantly convinced that he would lose me, that I would now, you know, rediscover my original father and that he would lose me. And, and I knew this could never happen, and it never did. But he was worried about that. So, And I think that fear in him and that sort of insecurity actually made me feel even more loved than before. I always had so much love from my parents and maybe even especially from him. Why did they not tell you earlier? They just decided. Um, you know, people who lived behind the Iron Curtain and their whole lives were formed, you know, in the 30s and the 40s and the 50s, they were completely different creatures, actually. There was so much that they needed to be secretive about. You know, to this day, when I meet up with my old school friends from Prague, and we kind of reminisce about those days, we all agree that in all our lives, there were so many secrets. There were so many things that parents didn't talk to their children about, simply because they were afraid there could be consequences. And for my mother to have had a relationship with an American-born man in Moscow was not such a great thing politically. So that was one side of it. And the other side of it was, I think, even more important. And, and I think this was my father's doing, really. He wanted, you know, my parents fell in love. They wanted to be married. They were instantly keen to have a family. So they just wanted this family to be instant and whole. And wholesome, I actually say in the book as well, because it just felt right to allow for the possibility that something was not quite the way it should be or that I wasn't quite completely 100% his. It interfered with that, with that vision and that instinct to just have a family that was all theirs. So I think that was the main reason. But why didn't they later on, you know, tell me themselves that's something that I've always been actually upset about because I would much rather, you know, have heard this from them than from a stranger. I'm Irving Finkel and you're listening to Resonance FM and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. Joseph, your biological father, you do eventually end up meeting. Yeah. So how does that go? Um, well, it was quite funny, actually, because he phoned me. The day of that phone call was a day of many phone calls. He phoned me maybe 10 minutes after the the phone call from Moscow. And we spoke and <laughs> he introduced himself in Russian as my father. And we had a nice, pleasant conversation. And he said he can explain everything. His side of the story was that my mother had decided that this is how it should be and that he that he had agreed that he would leave her alone with me and he would not interfere and that he kept his word. That was his side of the story. And so he, he was living in uh, New Jersey, actually, with his wife and he had a grown son, he had grandchildren. 
I happened to have had at the time a ticket to New York to go, I think, a week or two after this phone call to do some interviews for a German paper as a journalist. Uh, so I said, I'll be in New York very soon. So I actually saw him very soon after for the first time. And it was very interesting because he came sort of bearing gifts and he was so keen to remember my mother. Uh, he was so in love with my mother. He was keen to remember my grandfather. He adored my grandfather. He said my grandmother um, was quite cold to him. She didn't like him. But it was suddenly, you know, a kind of window into that life in Moscow before my mother met my father. You know, she had a different life for a while and I didn't know about it. So it was an interesting window into it. And I felt that Joseph was a very different type from my father. He seemed a bit shy, uh, where my father is very kind of dramatic and lively and very thoughtful. Um, and he said that, you know, I can ask him anything and he'll talk to me about anything. But then it turned out that he really, that that was not true. And there was so much he didn't want to talk about, particularly his father's role in life and in politics and his life and how things were um, before they came to America. So he was living in his own kind of denial. And everything that I later on found out about that side of the family just by doing research, he actually had no clue about. And that surprised me. So you said you, you go and research that side of the family. A lot of people do this nowadays. You know, you can go on Ancestry.com and things and, and find <laughs> relatives on the internet. Not everybody can go and look for their relatives in the FBI's archives as you do. I have to add, Neil, I didn't do that immediately, okay? There, I mean, years went by and I did nothing at all of that sort. I just kind of, you know, kept on communicating with them and there were emails and there were all sorts of things. The best outcome, actually, of my relationship with Joseph was him sending me every single book by Rex Stout uh, in the Nero Wolf series. So I fell in love with Nero Wolf through him and I sent him other books. And so this went on for years and years and years. And I didn't actually decide to write my memoir until several years later, quite a few years later. And only at that point did I feel that I had to really dig into that history. Now, digging into th that history meant digging into my grandfather's history on Joseph's side, his father and that whole family. And I found amazing uh, material on him in the FBI files, which you can request under the Freedom of Information Act, but also in the National Archives in London, because he spent time in Shanghai in 1934 as a spy. And this was the Shanghai Municipal Police was actually under British control. So those files were all here. The most surprising thing was, there were several surprising things, but the most kind of shocking in a good way thing was to be, you know, you go through the FBI material and the National Archives material and you read all these reports and it, it's very cloak and dagger kind of stories and you see how this is all assembled and how they put people in, under observation and they found things out and they misinterpreted many things. But pages upon pages upon pages, I loved reading all that. And then suddenly, there's a photograph 
you know, and the photograph is of my grandfather as a young man. This was a cab license, I think, in New York. And then my grandmother. And suddenly, and I realized, oh, my God, I look a bit like her. <laughs> so, again, you know, it's history, feeling and, and being real. Part of my life, part of my ancestor's life. And I... I'm a bit like a bloodhound when it comes to research. I just keep going until I find out everything, everything that connects people I can talk to, people I can interview. I found, you know, relatives still alive who knew my paternal grandmother's parents in Brooklyn. And we're talking the 20s. You know, they knew them in the, they were neighbors. They knew them in the building. It's quite, it's, it's, it's amazing. So if you dig long enough and deep enough, you can find out everything. And for me, one of the most rewarding things was to find relatives who, on that side, who are living all over America, and are really nice people. And I, I was able to reconnect with them. I was able to find out things that they never knew and were very interested in, in knowing. And it's not hard. You know, it's not hard. Ancestry.com is actually... A wonderful resource for, you know, not just sort of family tree stuff, but documents and media of all kinds. So, for example, I found the first thing that led me to my newly found American family and discovering, you know, where it all took place was by finding a newspaper clipping from 1952 where this grandfather, whose name was Leon Minster, was mentioned because he was in the news. This had to do with, I won't go into that now, but it, it had to do with, you know, uh, political events at the time. And he was mentioned, he was, he was, his name came up in an interview with a sister of his who was living in Connecticut, who said, no, this can't be true. She, she said he died a long time ago. She had no idea what had happened to him. So because I realized, oh, there's a sister in Connecticut. Well, there must be more. So that led me to actually discovering 10 or 11 siblings who were all living at some point in uh, mostly in Connecticut. And they had children and they had grandchildren. So I discovered this whole family. But the story of how that family came from uh, Ukraine, actually, to America in 1914 on a ship called the Tsar, actually, interestingly enough, there's a ship manifest with all the names of the family. All the, the mother came with the children, the father had gone separately. So all the children are named there with their original Hebrew names, which they had all lost, actually, uh, after coming to America. And I was able to figure out that my grandfather's name, Hebrew name originally in Ukraine, was Israel. And nobody in the entire family knew that. They knew him as Leon, and he had a nickname, Charlie, was, which was also his uh, sort of undercover name. But nobody knew that his name was Israel, and I thought it was kind of, I don't know, I felt it was moving that I, the lost child, the lost granddaughter, the lost family member, rediscovered after all these years and by learning about the family history, I actually found his original name. And I found that really meaningful somehow. 
that family, like you know, like a lot of a lot of immigrants were by that time well settled in America. Leon makes the conscious decision to go back to Moscow to start to become a spy, and we don't really know why he did that. But the obvious thing to say about that is, if he hadn't have done that, we wouldn't be having this conversation now. Exactly. That's the question that I would have loved to have asked him myself. You know, why were you different? Why did all the others just stay and and do the usual thing? You know, live and prosper in America. Why did you go back, really? And but what I did find was interesting. Again, ship manifests from the twenties, as early as the twenties, of him going to Germany, him going to France, him going to various ports in Europe. And I'm sure that that was in connection with him joining the Comintern at that time already. So he must have done it as a young man. And if you think about that period where, you know, there was, he, he had no money, really. He was just doing basic, simple jobs. Maybe this was his dream of changing the world. At the time, the Soviet Union was seen as the hope. And the fight was against fascism. You'd have to know a lot more than he probably did or could have known to have other views. Actually, I should add that when I received that first phone call from Moscow and he mentioned his name to me, the Russian man, I knew the name because I had just recently read a book, a biography of Whitaker Chambers by Sam Tannenhaus. It was a brilliant biography of um, Whitaker Chambers, who was a major a figure in mainly post-war American history. He was a key uh, witness in the Alger Hiss trial. And he was a communist himself and uh, then anti-communist. So he had an insight into both ways of looking at the world. And he knew my grandfather. So he mentions my grandfather in his book, which is why I actually, when he said the name, I said, I know that name. I've read about him not long ago, which I thought was a bit spooky. But, you know, you're reading a book and you think it happened to someone ages ago and then you realize or find out rather that it was your own grandfather. That's very, very strange. But anyway, it happened. And I thought in the context of that biography and and what I learned from that biography about those times, you can understand why someone felt that it was the right thing to do. You wanted to fight for freedom and this was your way of doing it. Plus maybe, by the way, he wasn't like a KGB spy, which didn't exist at the time anyway. He was a military intelligence spy, so GRU, which is military intelligence, and quite a low-level one at that. So like a technical worker, photography, um, some communications, um, and so on. So that was his job, and as maybe actually paid better than what he was able to do otherwise. So it could have been a combination of both idealism and finances. Just one more question then to finish it off. And we've we've talked about this a number of times across the interview, but you've you mentioned how much you've you've always wanted to be a writer. And of course now we're sitting here talking about this memoir and you've collected a short stories and and a novel and finally you you found that voice. So why let's talk about with all of those languages that you've you've acquired over the years, why English? Because just when I thought that I wouldn't find it, 
that I would actually have to give up on the idea of being a writer and, and really do something else, maybe something a lot more sensible. I came across this book called, um, in a secondhand bookshop, by the way, uh, completely by accident, in the 70s, so quite a while ago. The title of the book was uh, My Face for the World to See. And I loved the title immediately. I thought, what is that? That is a musical title almost what you know this sounds incredible and I opened it and I started reading I still have this book My Face for the World to See by Alfred Hayes an author I'd never heard of before so I started reading this and it begins with the scene where a middle-aged writer rescues a young woman who's trying to drown herself in the sea and there's a party going on it's quite sort of decadent Hollywood um, style background and he rescues her and they develop a fascinating relationship. She, he's married. She is quite sad and desperate. And the connection between them is very delicate and fragile and just beautifully described. And the language in that book is just, you know, just kind of gets under your skin in the lightest possible way. It, it feels effortless. It feels light, like feather-like almost. And I, and I thought, this is how I could write, this is how I would want to write in English. This would be, if this can be done in English, then that's the language I want to be a writer in. And this just stayed with me. And then gradually, as English sort of, you know, my life really developed in English in all sorts of ways, from my studies to, you know, family, to countries I lived in, to literature that I absorbed, it just became my language. And I realized you know, several years after that discovery of the book, one day, just all of a sudden, I realized that the diaries that I'd been writing all my life in Czech, suddenly I was writing them in English. And that was the change, you know, and then I started writing stories in English and, and it just took, took off from there. And then I really, writing in English was one thing, but then also becoming an editor and, and, and publisher of uh, English, of, of writing in English, of English authors, English, you know, uh, fiction and, and nonfiction. It all kind of came together. And I feel blessed that it has happened to me and that I was able to find another language, English, in which to be a writer and to find a new life. I've been talking to Elena Lapin. We've been talking about What Language Do I Dream In? My Family's Secret History, which is out now from Virago. Elena, thank you so much for coming in and sharing it with us. Thank you. It was really fun talking to you. You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Deddy and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. You can find the Little Atoms podcast on iTunes and you can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms. If you'd like to donate a little money to support the show, you can do so at littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. 
quince.com slash style. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style.